God's presence and guidance in evolution. Where is God in the evolutionary process? Did he just start the universe with the Big Bang and then step back? This is the Becoming Adam podcast with your host, Jay Johnson. He subscribes to the radical theory that evolution and the Bible both can be true. If you take issue with one or the other, please suspend your disbelief. For a few minutes, set aside the objections, rebuttals, and counterarguments. Just listen and allow yourself to think. What if? I'm Jay Johnson. Thanks for joining me. I apologize for the long layoff, but the flu wiped me out for a solid week. It's a pretty serious strain this year, so watch yourselves, kids, and pray the coronavirus outbreak doesn't make it to our shores. Before my unexpected vacation, one of my podcast listeners had asked for clarity on my series, Adam's Evolutionary Journey. After listening to episode three, she wrote, I was left feeling a little empty. Where is God in the evolutionary process? Did he just start the universe with the Big Bang and then step back? Good question. My short answer is that God guided evolution at every step along the way. Now for the long answer. A couple of years ago, the Discovery Institute mined its scholarly depths to put together a 1,000-page book called Theistic Evolution. For those of you who may be new to the origins discussion, discovery is the self-described hub of the intelligent design movement, and theistic evolution is the belief that God used the process of evolution to create all living things, including us. These days, most who hold that belief prefer the term evolutionary creation, which Dennis Lamoureux coined in his 2008 book of the same name. According to Lamoureux, The noun, creation, should receive more emphasis than the adjective, evolutionary, and I agree. Unlike theistic evolution, the emphasis in evolutionary creation is upon the creator, not upon the process. I also prefer evolutionary creation for another reason, one that comes out clearly in the Discovery Institute book. Like any general term, theistic evolution has been used to describe a range of positions, But in Discovery's book, Wayne Grudem gives it a definition that few Christians would accept. Namely, he says, God created matter, and after that did not guide or intervene or act directly to cause any empirically detectable change in the natural behavior of matter until all living things had evolved by purely natural processes. Strictly speaking, this hands-off description of God has more in common with 17th and 18th century deism than with Christianity. A deist would agree that a supreme being exists, but after setting everything in motion, the creator then allows the universe to run its course without interference. God is a disinterested observer, in other words. Creation thus becomes an infinitely complex course of dominoes that God set up in the beginning, and once he tipped over the first, nothing else was necessary to achieve his ultimate end. To be fair, a few Christians do believe that God front-loaded everything into his initial act of creation and afterward didn't need to be involved. But in my experience, I've found them so few and far between as to be negligible. 
Grudem's hands-off definition of theistic evolution certainly doesn't describe the vast majority of evolutionary creationists. And since the rest of theistic evolution bases its critique on Grudem's flawed foundation, the result is a 1,000-page doorstop. The Discovery Institute's main problem is that its pet theory, intelligent design, attempts to prove that evolution exhibits signs of design, which implies a designer. Of course, all thinking Christians agree that God had a plan and purpose for creating, but can that fact be proven? To do so, one would have to find evidence of God's intervention, which explains why Grudem inserts the caveat that God's guidance must cause some empirically detectable change in the natural order of things. So far, intelligent design theorists have failed to find the evidence they seek, and the question needs to be asked, why must God's involvement be something science can demonstrate? And going further, why would God provide scientific proof of his involvement? Would that be beneficial for faith or destructive of faith? Proverbs 2 encourages us to search for understanding us for hidden treasure with the promise that then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If the evidence for God were obvious, we would take it as much for granted as gravity and faith would cease to exist. Blaise Pascal pointed out 350 years ago that if God wanted to prove his existence, he could have revealed himself and removed all doubt, as he will on the last day. In the meantime, there is enough light for those who only desire to see, and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. The critic may ask for explanations of the exact mechanism God used to guide evolution, or for empirical evidence of his involvement, but there is no one-size-fits-all answer, no matter how often the question is asked. The Bible, for instance, insists that God controls the weather, and climate instability is associated with many key developments in human evolution. Faith tells me that this was one of the ways God could have guided the process, but I can't empirically demonstrate that proposition. God could have pressed an infinite number of levers to influence the direction of evolution, and almost all of them would be indiscernible or unprovable. Specificity is therefore an unreasonable demand since God didn't see fit to reveal how he did things. Others may take issue with the general notion of God guiding evolution. For a Christian, however, the idea is no more controversial than saying that God guides us in our everyday lives. For the sake of comparison to evolution, personal guidance provides a good start. The late USC philosophy professor Dallas Willard outlined a few principles in his book, Hearing God, and as he made clear, God's guidance in daily life almost invariably comes through secondary, ordinary means, not miraculous interventions. To the outside observer, such instances might appear perfectly mundane, as if nothing out of the ordinary has happened. What's more, the non-Christian always will be able to offer a reasonable alternative, usually coincidence. In any case, the analogy to personal guidance suggests that God easily could guide evolution through secondary, ordinary means that will leave no trace to the outside observer. The entire history of this planet seems one of extraordinary coincidences. Whether one attributes some, all, or none of them to God, that conclusion is a matter of faith, not science. Returning to the original question, where does God fit into the evolutionary process? 
While all evolutionary creationists agree that God was involved, they don't necessarily agree on the details of how that might have occurred. Some insist that God had to intervene at key moments, such as the creation of the first life form or the first humans. Others argue about the methods of God's actions, whether they were miraculous interventions or whether signs could detect them if they were. Without claiming to answer every objection or to speak for anyone other than myself, I'll sketch a reply. I believe God guided evolution at every step of the process. The Lord is intricately and intimately involved in his creation. He's not locked on the outside looking in. In theology, this is the doctrine of God's eminence or presence. Of course, since God is spirit, I'm not talking about his physical presence. Rather, the term eminence recalls the great prophecy of Isaiah 7 that the evangelist applied to Christ. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This principle runs throughout the scripture, from Abraham to Moses to Jesus to the end of redemptive history, when God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God with us is God's presence with his people. It's his commitment to be with us and watch over us and fulfill his promise to bring us back to himself no matter how far we wander, just as the Lord promised Isaac. While the Lord transcends time and space, the doctrine of God's eminence tells us that he is involved in our lives. He isn't confined to the roles of distant observer and judge. The Lord is present with us, in us, and through us. The problem with many people involved in the evolution and creation debate is that they focus so much on God's transcendence that they forget his eminence. Yes, the Lord exceeds time and space, no, this doesn't banish him from his creation. God's eminence equally applies to the creation. Genesis 1 compares God's work in creating the heavens and earth to constructing a temple. In Genesis 2 and 3, the description of Eden shares much in common with both the Holy of Holies in the temple and the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Commenting on Psalms 8 and 104, J. Richard Middleton notes, all the earth is holy ground or sacred space, intimately connected with heaven, the seat of God's throne. Indeed, the fact that God dwells in heaven is an articulation of eminence as much as transcendence, since the Creator has chosen to inhabit creation. God's eminence precisely is God's guidance, both of his children and his creation. At this point, it seems legitimate to wonder whether God's presence filled the earth after its creation. After all, Following the construction of the tabernacle in Solomon's temple, God's Shekinah glory, a visible manifestation of his presence, descended upon those sacred spaces like a cloud. By the same token, humanity was barred from the garden after the fall, and Ezekiel saw God's glory depart from the temple before its destruction. So, God's presence filled his earthly temple prior to humanity's descent into sin, and afterward God withdrew from us. In a new heaven and a new earth, Middleton argues that such a scheme is too simplistic. In his view, the spirit feeling is delayed until Genesis 2-7 when God breathes his breath into the man and he becomes a living being. Thus, human beings become the divinely designated mediators of God's presence on earth. I don't wish to disagree with that conclusion, which is certainly correct, but a third possibility exists. The spirit feeling indeed was delayed until the creation of humanity, 
But that doesn't preclude the Spirit being present in a special way within the garden itself after the creation of humanity. The garden narrative contains numerous hints of relationship between the Lord and the first couple. Although necessarily speculative, I would suggest that the Lord was present with early humans in a special way prior to the fall. Through His Spirit, the Lord guided humanity to maturity, like a loving mother taking her children under her wings. Previously, I leaned heavily on Proverbs 8 to explain humanity's fall, and I think it likewise sheds light on this question. In the poem, wisdom is personified and speaks directly to the reader, a form similar to a Mesopotamian hymn in which a deity praises himself in the first person. Christian interpreters traditionally viewed the personification of wisdom in the poem as a type of Christ, who says that from the beginning of God's creative labors, Then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the children of Adam. Rejoicing here has the connotation of play, of laughter, and the delight that wisdom expresses is the same delight that God expresses for Ephraim, my dear son, the child in whom I delight. As I see it, this was the condition in the garden before the fall, before humanity was barred from God's presence. God enjoyed and delighted in early homo's development the same way a parent takes delight in a child's growth. But whatever fellowship the Lord had with the children of Adam during those thousands of years of immaturity was altered when we rebelled. Those who were evil cannot look upon a holy God and live. God could no longer laugh and play with us. Instead, he hid from us for our own good. But, as Jeremiah prophesied, no matter how often the Lord has rebuked his dear children, his heart still yearns for us and he will surely have mercy on us. In the end, God will again play with his children. No longer will he have to hide his face. When we finally see him as he is, we shall laugh with him and delight in him forever, as he intended from the beginning. The Lord's creative purpose will inevitably be achieved. Thanks for listening to the Becoming Adam podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe. As always, references and footnotes can be found following the written version of the blog. Jay would like to thank the following sponsors for generously supporting this project. Sue Ellen Johnson.